hello good day to you i good day to <laughs> i don't i don't know how to introduce these uh moments but i can say my name is ben tartin and uh this is the podcast for Colossae East, small congregation that used to meet in East Portland. We live around East Portland anyway. Uh, so to those of you from Class A East, welcome. And always to those listening from beyond, welcome to you. We are in Portland. You've probably seen that it's under siege. Uh, we saw Portland, Oregon in on BBC News from London the other day. So, you know, I guess we're under siege. I would say that's contained to like one very small spot interesting place though i drove down there just two days ago to just kind of see what it looked like and it was uh destroyed you know everything's wrecked there used to be this big elk statue in the middle and i think they removed it to keep it from getting totally destroyed and there were a bunch of tents set up i mean probably 50 60 70 big igloo whale coolers you know filled with i assume food and beverage they probably had three or four big smokers and grills going cooking lots of food and uh i don't know six or seven booths with people selling pants and t-shirts and all kinds of stuff stuff that you would need and uh lots of trash and glass uh lots of things painted on the walls and windows if there is any window left most of downtown in that area is just plywood boarded up now and uh, you drive around through it and, and you see the slogans and things. You know, I drove my young children through downtown Portland and, oh man, did that expand their lexicon of swear words. I think they're all, uh, I don't know what else there is left. <laughs> what does that mean, Dad? It's like, oh, geez. Well, here's what it means, eight-year-old. I guess we're there now. Anyway, um, there's a deep, deep sense of repulsion that I have when I drive down through what feels like a social war zone. And it's uh, not aimed at anything in particular, I don't think. It's just like, ugh, whatever I'm looking at, it's, it's not what I have come to know as good or beautiful. It's something really raw. And that is at the heart of what we will talk about today, because we're still in the parables. I think it's very smart to see this this session and the previous one as more or less a two-part series in the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. We'll touch down on the two small ones we did last week, and we're looking at the way that Jesus invites us to imagine his kingdom uh, or maybe in in a better way to say it is to just imagine a world like this. Um, imagine what it would be like to live in this way. And I want to start because we, we talked last time fairly deeply about this notion of um, how how the church is to treat the world at the broadest possible level. But how somebody who sees themselves as a person of God, um, one who wants to live within the will of God or the kingdom of Jesus, how do you engage with a world that does not want that? And there's a hundred different, probably 10,000 different things you can point at to prove how this or that part of the world does not want to engage with the way of God. So what are you supposed to do? And there's sort of a common sense, basically, what do you do with evil? <laughs> you know, how do we handle it? What are we supposed to do? 
And this parable from last time invited us to look at, I think, this this thing called contempt. I didn't use the word last time, but that's a focus point for today. Contempt. When is the last time that you felt a deep sense of disgust towards someone or something that was happening? You know, I just like, ugh. This, and I'm not saying necessarily a guilty thing. Just like you saw something, you felt something, it was just like, oh, I just hate that. And the definition of contempt, I think, is really important. What it means, I looked it up and tried to do a little study on where do we get this idea. It is, quote, a disregard of something that should be taken into account. So to treat something or somebody with contempt is, is something you should be taken into account, but you disregard it. The feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, is worthless, or is deserving of scorn. If you trace the etymology of the word and you kind of, you know, where's the Latin, how does it break down, you get this sense thematically through like the Greek origins and whatever, over and again, it seems to have a verbal notion of cutting or beating. So I think you get that all in a, you know, feeling that a person is beneath you or beneath consideration even, <laughs> or worthless, or somebody deserving of scorn. And then um, it's the sense of like cutting them off or beating them down. And I think we get that in that parable of uprooting the weeds from the wheat field, cutting them off. And the disciples are like, so what are we supposed to do with the weeds? You know, cut them off. And there was a different answer. Okay. We talk all day long about what contempt is. What we know it is not is of God. Okay, <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing. There's there's a lot of nuance and example, but it is not something that God seems to do. It doesn't seem to be something he wields. Certainly not God in Christ. So, uh, uh, you know, how have you been feeling lately <laughs> in terms of contempt? <laughs> have you been disgusted at anybody you've seen? Disgusted by any reality in the world? I have been <laughs> brass tacks. I have been, and quite a bit of it. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you in a little microphone in a tool shed because of unbelievable amounts of horrible things and people that are doing everything wrong. <laughs> you know, like I, it's just this chaos in my heart and mind of, oh, this is so just, I hate it all. You know, it's funny. Um, America tells me that committing a hate crime is a really bad thing, really bad. But America, and I would say, you know, Portland in this own sort of Pacific Northwesterny kind of way, uh, it tells me that there are whole classes of people who should be disregarded and never taken into account. And I think we can argue about who goes in which classes, but we all agree on what to do with the so-called enemies. I don't care what side of any equation you're on. If you have any sense of common, basic common sense, interesting, common sense, you know what to do with your enemy. What must be done 
what the righteous thing is to do. We even have Bible verses to prove it. I think my whole upbringing of, of just being in America through its stories and its histories and its artwork, it tells me over and over again. Think about all this. Our storytelling hub is television and Netflix and stuff, right? Think about every story that you listen to. Kids' stories, grown-up stories. I don't care what the story is. There's always a repeating recording in the theme of every one of them. And there's a sense that there are some people who are beneath others. There's always the throwaway. We need to do away with them, get rid of them. Beneath our consideration, they're worthless, deserving of serious scorn, cutting out, beating down. I mean, we just watched a Marvel movie with the kids the other day. It's always the nemesis, and we're all just like, beat him down, get rid of him, <laughs> blow him out of the cosmos. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just the way we're built. And it's not just religious circles. It's not just non-religious circles. It's both. You'll find it in the universities and in the bar. You'll find people teaching and preaching contempt toward others in very positive, hilarious, very normal terms, you know? It's the brunt of much comedy. And it terms and ideas and stories that just teach us to disregard that one. Don't even consider that kind of person. They said, what? They did what? Are you joking me? That means they're just one of those kind of people. <laughs> they disgust me. And if you're smart, and if you're not ignorant, and if you're awake, then they will disgust you too, believe me. Folks, this is not Jesus from Nazareth. He did not operate in that kind of way, and therefore he just wasn't understandable. You know? It just makes sense to treat a very, very aggressive enemy a certain way. Even if they're even if they mean well, there's something that you gotta do. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't didn't live in that common sense kind of way, and his way ends up being very small and seemingly uh, quite insignificant. Well, there was a theme in one of the small parables from last week, that parable of the uh, mustard seed. It seems just like more than a fleck on your skin, just a little tiny speck, but can turn into something and does indeed grow into something very large. And so this is, uh, this is kind of where we're going today into four more parables and a recapping of that parable of the wheat and the tares. And we're looking at the way that last week, the sense of, and I want to talk, I want to review that a little bit more clearly in a second, but just basically that sense of uprooting, um, which the disciples are asking, should we uproot, tear out the evil ones? Right. Jesus says, absolutely not. And that's a very significant, like, what are you talking about? Don't do that. <laughs> How do you mean don't? Of course, What? And that's the moment, folks. That's exactly where we get real excited. The parable doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with what we know and therefore is inviting us to see or imagine the kingdom of God in a way that we just haven't seen it yet or before or in a new way right now for this week. Okay? Jesus gives us this invitation to become grace, if you will, to people, to become a gift to people. 
to become the mercy of God in a tangible way, like right now, today, COVID world 2020, you know, to live and practice a hospitable way that loves our neighbors, whether they are the people of God or not. Okay. To, it's this sense of your goal is not going around to uproot the bad ones and favor the good ones. It's to be that presence of God to all. I don't think you ever see Jesus treating another human being with contempt. I just don't, I don't think you can do it. Yes, he speaks words of passion. He will speak words of condemnation, judgment, ferocious warning. Though he doesn't condemn people. In fact, he says, I didn't come to do that. But I did come to help you judge and discern. <laughs> he speaks these profound words of wisdom and he helps people discern those who would embrace death and suffering from those who would embrace life and, and seek real life. So he's really bold and he, he's, don't hear me talking about Jesus like he's some kind of baby who whispers all day long. He's a really powerful presence, but however passionate and loud that he gets, However bold his speaking or his acting is, he never, ever treats another person as though they're below consideration or worthless or deserving of scorn. Never. And in my opinion, I think this is pretty tr provable. I don't think Jesus ever treats another human being as though they're beneath him. I think he sees all humanity as mutual to him. He identifies himself in a sibling way. Not only and not always. I understand that. He also is the king <laughs> and the Christos, the Messiah. So there's more to it. And yet that is part of it. And the part of it is that he sees this mutuality with others. It's profound. Uh, Okay, just before I go, think of Judas. Think of the story of Judas, okay? Think about all that Jesus knew about Judas, and think about when he knew it about Judas, and then watch how he treats Judas right up to the absolute very end. I mean, the end. And then remember, what's on you know, the table here is not Jesus' reputation or his income. It's his life. This is a known murder plot. I think Jesus knows what he's up to, what he's doing, what's about to happen. It's like all there. And then watch how Jesus treats what we see as this infamous, long-scorned Judas Iscariot. I don't care if you were raised in the church or not. You know what it means to call somebody a Judas. He's the epitome of what we scorn and what we hate. It's amazing though, often contempt reveals what we actually see in ourselves. I often wonder if my despising of Judas is actually because I know I too betrayed Jesus. Whew, that got deep. Watch how Jesus treats that infamous, horrible guy, Judas, and then tell me if you think that Judas, if, if, he, if he actually treated Judas like he was a lesser. I'll, okay. That's a big, you, know, you can chew on that one for a little bit. You get what I'm saying. Okay, so let, we, we have to review. I know I kind of reviewed it, but I want to make a few more points, and then we're going to go through four parables. 
Um, and we're, the two will go a little bit quicker with the ones we've already done, be the parable of the mustard seed and then the parable of the leaven. And then we get into the parable of the pearl in the field and then the parable of the fish in the net. All right. So last week was the parable of the wheat and the tares, or, you know, the sermon was called There Will Be Weeds. And we said then that the idea is that the kingdom is not only present right now in the world, but it is surrounded by evil and systemic injustice. I think that's a fair way to put it. So one major idea is, yes, the kingdom is here. And people are like, what, where? He's like, we'll get to that. <laughs> but know this, it's surrounded still by evil. And that is not making a whole lot of sense for them. And, and just imagine, Jesus is saying, imagine that's the reality for the time being. So we're going to have to imagine a patient endurance until the end. When it's God who brings the judgment. So we have to imagine here that the good seeds are those are the people that are connected to Jesus. And then there's the weeds. They get sown in by the evil one. You know, for Jesus's day, that's probably the people who are bound to Rome, connected to Rome in some way, the bad guys, the Gentile guys, but today more broadly to evil. So in this same plot called the world, there's good and bad seed that's going to get thrown down into the same dirt. And, you know, lo and behold, it all grows up and mixed together. So that the wheat and the weeds parable becomes, remember, it's really important. It's about the world and the church or the common sense way of life, you know, that people live <laughs> and operate in. And, the, and then the way that is very different than the way of Christ, the king, the world versus the true people of God or the kingdom, if you will, how these are very different. So that is a very common category in Jewish thinking. You find it all over the place, the true people of God and how they are different from, in every possible way, the everybody else. The idea was that we don't treat people with contempt. The idea of Jesus's parable, evil people, disobedient people, cruel, law-breaking people, disgusting people, people with mental and physical diseases that seem to ruin basically a lot of what you want. Don't uproot them and just tear them out, cut them off, treat them as disgusting. You think that that solves a lot more than it does. <laughs> and you never get to see, you never get to see under the surface. You never get to see how much harm it does to other people. Everybody gets harmed. And it's really interesting if you think um, about the image of the seeds going down under the surface. They go down under the surface, and then as they come back up, all those weeds are the root systems are all entangled down under the surface. I don't know. You can't read that much into a into a parable, but it's interesting. It makes sense to me. I see it in the way that sometimes I see huge difference in the other person. And then when I realize it, like deep at the core of who we are, we're really so much the same. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like maybe he says, don't rip it up because he says, when you start ripping up root systems, you'll realize how deeply entangled you guys all are. It's it. He says in his parable, it causes harm to the to the wheat. You'll uproot the wheat as well. OK, instead, be patient endure, become the gospel to one another, learn to love one another. 
And that was a big theme in the parable, this necessity of patience if we're going to live with Jesus and his kingdom. We're going to see it again in the other parables today. It's patience that is such a deep foundation block for what has to happen in the kingdom, I guess. <laughs> that seems to be what Jesus is saying. And I think impatience is almost always inherent to human beings' visions of salvation. You see it in the prophet of old. The prophet cries out, how long does this have to freaking take? Because <laughs> as far as, you know, in between the lines is, because as far as I can tell, we've all had plenty of this. I've had enough, you know, how long, oh Lord? And, you know, sometimes God responds to that question in some uh, cool ways and other times less satisfying ways. He seems to be okay with making sure that we know he loves us, making sure that we know his promise is legit, and then letting us learn to just trust him. I don't know. He doesn't explain as much as I wish God would. But, you know, impatience is inherent to our human visions of salvation. So when people start to see a way, right, like, I know what to do. And it's their way or a group of people's way or whatever. To, and it's the way to establish justice. Those, they almost have no patience involved with that vision. If you find one, you know, maybe, maybe they exist, but I don't see them very often. Just listen to the main voices and the main leaders anywhere in our world today. I don't care what country it is or political party or social issue. doesn't matter. And then find somebody who is casting a vision for long-suffering with our enemies and patiently loving them at high levels of cost to our own selves, all right? <laughs> and if you find one of those leaders, send me a link, you know, because I think that's pretty hard to find. I think that, unfortunately, can be hard to find sometimes even in so-called Christian circles. That ability, that willingness, that deep sense of trust in God so much that we can live in this kind of way. The higher enthusiasm that you have about your personal vision, I think the more impatience there is with that vision. Something needs to be done. Don't miss the opportunity. We've waited long enough. We have to do some. And in the need for all that expedience, what gets lost is the deep complexity of the human. How and why people have been formed into doing what they do the way that they do them. The kind of uh, infinite wisdom and knowledge of another human being that you would need to carefully and correctly judge them. <laughs> it's just not possible. So you start, and I think we all kind of know that because anytime another human being has ever really judged you or condemned you or treated you with contempt, you have said to yourself, they don't know the whole story. Yeah. So there's this sense of sort of trusting that even the most vile offender in our midst is yet at the basic core, a miracle of God to be respected in a mutual brotherhood sort of way. It's not to say be um, irresponsible, although maybe it is. Even pastorally, I, I hesitate. Why am I checking at that? Jesus looks irresponsible to a lot of people. We'll come back to that. Point is, is in the need for expedience, we end up wrecking people. We have to tear them out. People with, an un, with a different voice, we have to silence them. 
We have to shut them out. We have to shut them down. And that's just common sense. You might feel like we're talking about uh, current events here, right? We are in a sense, but this is just the common sense way of the world. Every single place that you look, I think almost like it's at that DNA level. I mean, just generation to generation revolving. So one of the apocryphal texts called the Psalm of Solomon uh, has this sense. Uh, it, it, it has some tie to, in the canonical scriptures, our actual Psalm number 72. Uh, but in the Psalm of Solomon, an apocryphal text, you have, a, you have this uh, passage that's circulating in the days of Jesus, giving us a sense of how people were expecting the Messiah to come. So out of that chapter, you know, I'll quote here, notice, notice some of the expectation for what it is that's going to happen, not only when just like in general evil is done away with, but specifically like this kingdom of the Messiah coming or God's holy heavenly kingdom coming, what's that going to look like? How's that going to, you know, come to pass? Well, it's going to be a time where you'll purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles, quote, drive out the sinners from the inheritance to smash the arrogance of sinners. He will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. He'll gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. He will not tolerate unrighteousness among them. All right. The alien and the foreigner will no longer live near them. There will be no unrighteousness among them in these days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. All right, well, that's a very normal sort of mentality. We kind of all long for that, right? Like, wouldn't it be great if there just weren't a bunch of evil people around? Ugh, be the best. It's just the common sense. Back then, it is today. You see it in uh, uh, Peter, in his heart. He's got this same sort of idea where he's just, he's got the vision. God has to really speak to him. Paul later has to rebuke him. He just has this sense that there are some above and some below, beneath, less than to be disregarded. It's just kind of there. That God would want to, his true people, to actually patiently endure the Gentiles and their sinful and unholy and unclean ways, uh, their perpetually, systemically unjust ways, God wants us to do what with that now? <laughs> you know, you got to be joking. That's not what we've been taught, Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches, Jesus. That's not what the Bible teachers of the Bible have taught us that we're supposed to believe, Jesus. That's not what we want to believe, Jesus. <laughs> I think they're hoping. I, I don't even think they're hoping. I think they just know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to smash the arrogance of sinners. He's going to destroy the Romans, cleanse the land from all the racists, from all the murderers, from the corrupt government leaders and thieves and gangsters, from the drug runners, from the cheaters. He's going to get rid of those lawless perpetuators of violence and oppression. It's going to finally be done. Who doesn't want that? I want that. Don't you? Doing away with everything that creates harm to human life and flourishing? I would love that. Common sense says that to do that, you have to get rid of the evil. God has promised, I will get rid of the evil. Then he said, that's going to start happening with my king. That's going to be what my kingdom is like. And so we're like, great. Then on day one of the kingdom showing up on earth, that'll be the day one of there will be blood. 
And Jesus is like, no, there will be weeds mixed in with the good ones and people who want to follow God, and that's going to be for some time, and you're going to have to listen carefully to me. Because I'm inviting you to imagine a way of life where you are so grounded and so at peace with who you are and what you know God has promised and shown you he's good to promise for, <laughs> that you will be able to live with some of the most horrendous, fearful, violators, and sinful folks that you can imagine, and you will do so in a grounded way, just the same way that Jesus entered into the tomb of a demon-possessed man in the Gennesarenes, and all of it was unclean and scary and broken and deathly, and Jesus walked in, and he brought healing. Not judgment, condemnation, or a big fence to keep all the good people away from the bad one, but instead he moves in this way where there is no part of the world he can't get into. This is a profound mystery we're being invited into. Common sense says cut it off. Disregard it. Do away with it. Get it gone. Jesus agrees we need to get evil gone. His idea was not that you should stop caring about getting evil gone. We all should care about that. This is not what some have called Christianity, which is just an opiate of trying to feel good about everything. No, this is an entrance into a sober suffering where you recognize this is a high-cost game. But it's not a game at all, is it? It's a life. It was to know that that's going to happen. But his powerful kingdom coming about is not going to happen like you think. And the eradication of that evil is not going to be common. It won't happen the way we've all expected. So he wants us to imagine a kingdom where there will eventually be a total true and final justice through a true and merciful judgment. And this is not something I talked about last week, so I really want to hit it now. It's We're never saying that Jesus is just cool with evil and no biggie because of love. Now let's just be nice. That is a terrible, it's not, that's inhuman. That is demoralizing and inhuman. He, we crave an end to what we know is evil because we've all felt it. And none of us want to say, just teach me that that's okay. No, thank you. It's just not how we're built. There will be an eradication of evil and injustice, a full healing of what's been broken. Justice in the Bible means putting it right, revealing all the things that nobody paid attention to so that money and power could continue on, Right. So that we, we, we could suffer quietly and nobody would get in trouble. That all gets revealed for sure. But in this broken and corrupted world where there's kingdoms all around you, right? Like Babylon or Russia or the United States of America. As we live in these kingdoms all around us, we're invited by Jesus to imagine a kingdom, a very present and real kingdom my professor Scott used to say it this way. He said it once on a bus, a present and real kingdom, the people of God living under King Jesus peacefully, coexisting in tension with non-kingdom people. This is what Jesus expects life in his world to be like. He knows that in the end it is fully healed, restored, and clarified like the sun shining in the sky. Everybody knows it. Right now, it's not that way, and so ours is the way of Christ, the way of the cross. 
You'll meet all kinds of people, he says, who don't want to embrace Jesus as the king or want to live within this kingdom. Just expect it. Get used to it. It's not a big deal, and it's not a problem you're supposed to fix. Take a breath. You're not responsible to solve it. Keep loving justice. Keep doing good, showing mercy. But know that all kinds of people are not. They don't want it. Now imagine a kingdom surrounded by non-kingdom people. Yes? And know that real life within Jesus' kingdom is going to look a lot like the life of Jesus himself, the one from Nazareth. This is a nonviolent kind of way of life. It's not a crusader, warrior way of life at all, unless you can show me how Jesus lived that way. He lived the exact opposite of that way. It's very tempting to uproot those perceived weeds in our own congregations, in our own social groups. Oftentimes, we like to focus on uprooting the people primarily in the world around us. We'll disregard them. We'll put them beneath us, cut them off. When we have the power and we have the right to do it, and we need to do it now. And I'm telling you folks, it's just not the way of Jesus. This is what we were learning in the last parable. He let go of all of those kinds of rights all of that kind of power, and instead he humbles himself and becomes a servant to you and me and our neighbors and human beings everywhere. And this is what power is. Admittedly, though, it's a pretty mysterious way of being powerful. The kingdom has come, writes a New Testament scholar named George Eldon Ladd. He's got a great book on New Testament theology. He says, the kingdom has come, but society is not uprooted. This is the mystery of the kingdom. Okay? That's the mystery. If you're like me, you were taught that you're supposed to uproot it. Even sometimes interpersonally, not to be patient with the evil within you and just keep striving toward the light and the goodness, but instead to focus on the evil inside of you. Focus on it. Hate it. Hate that part of you. Treat it with contempt. You're sick. You're gross. You're just a piece of junk. And it's like even in an interpersonal way this works, you know? Because I know from my own life that when that's how I approach myself, I die and die and die worse. And when I can turn around and say, look, the way I was formed brought me into how I think and behave. And I am not saying I now have an excuse for what I do, but I am saying focusing on how bad I am hasn't helped me. Focusing on how much God loves me and wants me and how much I am in his kingdom has just started the work. And I see it in people all around me. All right. Well, he's bringing us into thoughts like that, not through a hardcore proclamation of clear exegetical truth. I mean, I'm being invited even as I sit here and talk in my woodshed out back. I, I'm invited to imagine this with you and keep imagining it. What does it look like to be so free that you're no longer really self-protective? I can't just, you know, hear a nice podcast and then be like, oh, cool, I'm going to do that now. I'm, I think it's just a total way of life. I think we start to be willing to commit to Jesus' way of life pretty much at the point when you start to realize that all the other ways just fail. <laughs> Even if they have a lot of Christian words and Bible verses to supposedly prove that they're true, 
they just end up leaving you wrecked and hollow and hating yourself and whatever. And it's like, this, this isn't what Jesus was calling us to. And then you start to see it differently. And I think I'm like talking about how to experience that the way that a parable, which makes no sense at first, starts to make more and more sense the more you live in it and more you just kind of see, huh, maybe he's onto something. Maybe all the times that I've actually fought to control somebody else and win, I've actually destroyed what relationship I had with them and then just resorted to facade and fakeness. <laughs> and maybe we're all so used to doing that, that that's why we all say privately with a loved one when we're hanging out and nobody's listening, it just feels like we're getting faker and more and more isolated everywhere we go. <laughs> it's, it's incredible, folks. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting us to imagine a different way of life. Let's go to a few more examples because they're really good. We're going to go mustard seed. We talked about this last time, so we'll go a little bit quicker for all of for these next two for sure. I'll read it to you, though. To begin, we're in Matthew 13 again. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and we'll read verse 31 and 32. We read it last week, but, you know, it's good to read stuff twice. Here is another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in, it, in its branches. All right? It's like a mustard seed. Some people want to get hung up on the size of, is it truly the smallest or whatever? Just think he's talking about a very common idea for just the smallest thing in the world. We would say, like, it's as small as a grain of sand. They said, it's as small as a mustard seed. So it's the smallest, it's tiny, 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 and it will become very significantly large. Sometimes we think that means it's going to become a huge institution, like a big organization, a big, successful, huge organization. You know, you can almost see the chart of authority structures all the way through it. I think more truly, he's just saying it starts small and becomes large, but I don't want to get too deep into it's a huge organization. The contrast is between how it starts and how it ends up in terms of how much of the world it encompasses, if that makes sense. The assumption, the assumption is, is obvious. If something as massive and complex and powerful as systemic evil and injustice is going to be stopped, it's going to take something even more powerful, <laughs> right? How do you stop the power of a river? You make an even more powerful dam. How do you stop this bad cause? You bring an even more powerful responding effect. It's just that simple. So that's the obvious assumption. The mustard seed says, yeah, we're going to give you a picture of something that's not very powerful at all. It's the smallest of garden seeds. <laughs> you know, image of a garden for one, that's not very strong. You know, it's not what people think when they think of powerful presence. You know, you're thinking military or whatever. So the world Jesus enters into and the people he speaks to parable to could not understand how a man or a woman could talk about the kingdom apart from huge power and total control of God and a total eradication of evil, like right now, we want it now. To that mindset, 
a very small band of poor fishermen from low-income housing in northern Galilee world, you know, they're just not going to have much to do with the kingdom of God. They don't know, have, they don't have what it's going to take. They don't know what it'll take. They don't, what would they do? Come on. We're talking about real deal stuff here. We're talking about real stuff, grown-up stuff, guys. To that mindset, there's not much you can see in Jesus. So he's rejected by the popular religious celebrities and the thought leaders of his day. He's seen as an idiot by the most prominent influencers, the most powerful and wealthy and well-known, well-respected people, well-learned people. You know, the people you kind of need to be on board with if you ever want to get anything really done. Yeah, rejected by those folks. Instead, the folks who accepted him were poor. The people that the religious, you know, power brokers, not all religious people, don't ever hear me saying that, but the, the ones that were powerful and knew it all, they hated Jesus. The tax collectors accepted him. Other people who were bad throwaways. He spent time and loved people who were racist, real oppressors, like people who were part of the Roman Empire. Just do a little study on what the Roman Empire did to people to keep its dominance. Really, really heavy oppression. And Jesus spent time with them. He gave them his attention and his love. He was welcomed more and more by the people that nobody cares about, and he was shut out and rejected, even treated with contempt, by those who many saw as the wise and the powerful. The fellow I quoted before, George Ladd, he writes this, Jesus' answer is, first the tiny seed, later the large tree. The smallness and relative insignificance of what is happening in his ministry does not exclude the secret presence of the very kingdom of God. The invitation for us is to really start allowing our minds to be reframed from what is significant and what is effective, and to let Jesus really inform that. We move now to the 33rd and 34th verse, parable of the yeast. We did this one last week too, so we'll do it briefly. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman used in making bread. Even though she put out only a little yeast and three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. All right. Like the mustard seed here, there's a huge contrast between how small it begins and how all-encompassing it becomes. So the same sort of notion. It's like this. It goes from very little imperceptible to in everything. But I think here it's a little different than the seed and the mustard plant because it's a sense of permeation. So not just huge or a big shelter for nesting birds, but here it's like it gets into everything. It gets into the school system and into the fuel industry and into the government. It gets into that family in your neighborhood that you just never expected would want to be with God. Maybe it even gets into their life through your presence in their world. You know, like it gets everywhere somehow. And we kind of have to note if the way of Jesus's kingdom gets into all of this, like into every part of the world or maybe to the ends of the earth, then it won't just keep all of the world's systems in play, but simply restaff them with nicer people. And unfortunately, I think that was a vision that I was given. Like, 
we all know how things work. We just have to be better at it morally, <laughs> you know? But this is like, this is how you get from A to B. This is how you deal with an unruly employee. This is what we do with somebody who's committed a crime. This is what we do when somebody flies their airplane over our airspace. We know what to do. We just have to make sure that while we're doing it, we're going to church and reading our Bible and doing our Bible study and, you know, being good about it. And I think the invitation here with the idea of yeast is it's like, it's going to get into the fiber of everything that builds everything. And when that starts happening, it all starts to get very different, you know, in ways you can't even imagine. It just gets right into the stuff of life in this world. So someday we might actually think totally differently about fuel and why it's good to go from A to B at the speed we do. Because right now, I don't even think about it. It's just like it's better to get there sooner. What's the quickest route? Thank you, Google Maps. <laughs> Later on, we might say, oh, my gosh, can you believe that generation of people used to use an entire gallon of gasoline just to go to work? Oh, my goodness. You know, <laughs> and you listen to that and you're like, whatever, hippie. But honestly, I think I think this is what it means. Like the kingdom of God and its value system for human flourishing and love I think it would reframe basically everything we currently hold dear. Maybe not everything, but a lot of it. Okay, well, that's that. We can we can move on. Next parable, verse 44 through 46. This is the treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovers in a field. In his excitement, he hides it again, sells everything he owns to get enough money to go back and buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. Okay? Now, I think I used to, in my good judgmental fundamentalist eye, got hung up on the sort of, uh, <laughs> the sharp way that he does his business deal here, you know? It's a little abrasive. Um, in their day, no abrasiveness at all. That's just the way things are. All right. So the idea is not, did he make the right honest sale? I think Jesus wants us to get him. <laughs> not at all. He's saying there's nothing more valuable, nothing you can possibly, it's worth giving everything you possibly can. All right. I think that's at least the low hanging fruit. This is the most valuable thing ever. I hear comic book guy, most valuable thing ever. <laughs> I don't know if comic book guy would say that. Anyway, don't hear me saying here, i got to be clear, that going to church on Sunday needs to be more precious to you than working or watching TV or going to the football game, right? You need to make sure that nothing comes between you and your quiet Bible time. I'm not saying that. Maybe that is important to you, so I'm not arguing against that either, but it's simply saying that the valuable nature of, of the kingdom of God, living in it is a profound challenge to us. It is so valuable, especially in terms of whatever it is you're about to do. You're about to click the button and post that article or the meme or your own opinion. And in that moment, something valuable is happening to you. Okay? You feel empowered. I can make my voice be heard. I'm doing something, unlike those people who do nothing, and then you feel good, that's valuable. You feel active, that's valuable. It proves that you're not in the bad place. All of that might be true. Those kinds of feelings are valuable and oftentimes the link or the post or whatever it would be would be extremely good to say. However, 
we want to say, how about the actual kingdom value, which is greater? Right when you're about to achieve all of that other goodness through something as simple as the click of a button from your couch, ask yourself, is this the movement of love? Am I compelled to do this because of disgust for another human? Or am I compelled to do this because I can see this is the same kind of work that Jesus does? This is how he treats sinful people publicly. This is, this is the merciful, kind, and loving, and inviting way that I see Jesus in the New Testament. So if that's why you're clicking the link button, click it. <laughs> and if not, then, this, then doing the action, however valuable it is in certain ways, or maybe seems, it's actually not ultimately advancing anything good. Not in the long run, anyway. That's the craftiness of the devil, I think, or the evil power in this world twists things that momentarily look or feel really, really good, but he helps us or he, he capitalizes, I guess, on our inability to see the long term. That's why God keeps saying, trust me on the long term. You love one another. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, it's, I like the simplicity there. It's just not easy to do. Well, you get what I'm saying here. If it's not Christ-like, it's not the kingdom. Only the way of Jesus actually leads to anything that lasts. And only the work of Christ, I think, therefore, is actually worth doing. Now that expands. There's a lot of work we do in this world, but it's like we can do all of it, all of it, in a Christ-like way. And if whatever it is we're doing can't be done in a Christ-like way, then it probably is just like hardcore sin. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. This way of living in the kingdom is worth more than getting a promotion. So if to get in the promotion means you have to do something harmful to your kids, it's better to not get it. Yeah? It's worth more than winning an argument. So when you're thinking, I want to live in the way of Christ's kingdom, and just like losing this argument, and you actually know they're wrong. You know it. It's actually provable. They're dead wrong. But you know that proving it and winning it is really of no ultimate consequence. But your loving, socially connected, trusting bond with the person is, you just let the argument go. Man, the kingdom person is patient and flexible. Flexible with people. We play judo. We don't box, you know. Only the work of Christ is actually doing. I'm calling right now all Americans. All right. So you're probably you. You and me both. Living in the way of Jesus' kingdom is more valuable than our personal freedom. This parable of the pearl invites us to imagine a way of life with Jesus that in every decision we make, the kingdom way is more valuable than any other way, no matter how much the decision promises you. And there's one more point here, and this is not the low-hanging fruit, I don't think. Notice how the pearl is already in the field. It didn't enter in with a big fireworks display or a big fanfare. The pearl, it's here. Yay, the kingdom. Somehow, in some mysterious, invisible way, you know, there's a pearl buried out in the field. Who knew? You know, the kingdom comes, I think, in this way. Originally hidden, you know, eh, it's just a dirt field. Who cares? Originally misunderstood. Slow but sure, something happens. You get into that first century and take a look at Jesus and his disciples as they move through town, 
and come through your town, you would never think that you're looking at the beginning of the cosmic future. <laughs> you know, just imagine you're sitting out there picking olives from your olive grove, and here comes the merry band of Galilean disciples following that weirdo. And and then to like later on look back on that moment and be like, I literally watched the beginning of a cosmic future in those people. <laughs> you know, I'm laughing about it, and yet I believe it. That's how confusing and beautiful and mysterious this is. Those people, to them, I don't think would have had anything to do with the future. What mattered was Rome. What mattered was the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the priestly rule, the governors, those in power. That's, they draw all of our attention. They command it. It's what we point our cameras at. It's what we channel through everything we do. Who's in charge? Who has the power? Who has the money? Who can hurt me? And yet here's Jesus. And here we are. It's the year 2020 because of a man named Jesus who lived in Nazareth. We mark the years on when he we think he came to the world. <laughs> Everybody does, by the way. We never thought that what he started would be this. Nobody could have. But my goodness, that spark of love that he ignited continues illuminating the world. One miraculous soul at a time. Man, it's beautiful. Moving to the parable of the fishing net. And this will be our last one. Verse 47 in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. This is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said we do. <laughs> Those liars. <laughs> but I'm sure that they were not lying. I'm sure that they could only have said yes to what they understood then and would learn much more, just like we all do. Then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Yes? That's a beautiful picture, a picture of wisdom. We don't throw away the past. We learn from it. We don't, gosh, I realize even as I say that, I'm not talking about the whole issue about monuments and all that. Not at all. That's not in any way what was on my, right as I say that, I'm like, don't use me to argue for that or against it. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying we, we don't treat our past, even our ancestors, even our own upbringings with contempt. But we learn to see from it, to learn from it, to see wisdom and glean from it, as well as tying in this wisdom of the kingdom that Jesus invites us into through parables and the other things he teaches. That's a beautiful picture. I think it's a lot like the parable of the wheat and the weeds in the sense of a collection of kingdom people, those true people of God mixed together with those who are not kingdom of God people. And they all sort of get scooped up in the same net. It's that same kind of idea as wheat and weeds growing in the same field. With that idea is the notion that in the end, and this is, I think, the end of the story that we call humanity on earth, <laughs> there will be some sort of clear separation. 
But the beginning of the kingdom, as Jesus has started it, is not that time of separation. Now we're back to how we started this talk, where the idea was once the kingdom is here, that's the day the bad ones burn, right? Now instead, it's the kingdom has started, and here's how it begins. You're going to learn to coexist with people who are radically different than you in every moral and other way. And I'm going to teach you the way of Christ, which is patience. Trust in the Father, and away we go. Now, we are still going to make good on all the promises God said about a full eradication of evil. But folks, I'm even seeing in the way Jesus is talking, this sense of removing all that causes evil and all those who cause evil. Perhaps we will even be surprised by what he means in those terms. Our posture is simply to see what he says and how to live now. Okay? The beginning of the kingdom as Jesus has started it is not that time of separation. It appears that is not really our deal at all. It's God's judgment of reality. Again, who among us would pick up the first stone? Who has the wisdom and infinite knowledge of the complexity of a person to make the judgment? None of us do. So God does the purifying work. So even this community created by God and by the working of his kingdom, it's not to be a pure community until later when God does the purifying work. And that seems to be something we know very little about. Purifying work is not our work if it includes the uprooting or dismissing of other human beings. There's a lot of language about purifying work in terms of your own life and participating with God through looking at where you yourself have control, which is really ultimately only over you. So we're all the way back at that popular expectation that a lot of folks had. We looked at it in that Psalm of Solomon, chapter 17, where we saw the people longing for this time when the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, would come and destroy the godless nations, rebuke sinners for the thoughts of their hearts, that he would not tolerate the unrighteous among them. The alien and the foreigner would no longer live near them. There would be no unrighteousness, right? There's this expectation for a purging and a holiness. It's a popular expectation that the Messiah would enter into this broken world and do something powerful and redemptive that would make the voice of God heard. Make your voice heard. And their hearts and their minds, like ours, had very little ability to see any kind of wisdom in allowing others to continue on with normal, everyday evil. They had a desire to get rid of the bad ones, etc., etc. And God said, that is mine. That divine knowledge and wisdom, I'm the judge. Those fish in the net are gathered up, if you can look at it a little bit, by another power, aren't they? They're kind of helpless. They're just not somebody's pulling us up. I think the individual fish by themselves may not have what's needed to know how to separate themselves. If we're fish in that net, we're not to be fish who consider ourselves kings, but instead fish who belong to the kingdom of God and therefore know that loving one another is the most credible possible thing we can do. Our judgments of others are not credible. Love alone is credible. So if the love of Christ is not evident, then it is not the work of Jesus. It's just not. It's not the kingdom. And as all of these parables suggest in their own nuanced way, 
that work of Christ is not very valuable to the world, but it is truly more valuable than anything, you know? They suggest that the work of Christ is small and seemingly insignificant, but it is actually huge and infinitely powerful. Nothing can stop it. They suggest that the kingdom is hard to see at first, but one day it's, you know, <laughs> it's here. It's like a seed that's hidden in the ground. It's like yeast that's hidden in the dough. It's like a treasure that is discovered because it was hidden or buried under the soil. It's like the net that submerges under the water's surface to catch all sorts of fish. Some small things are very hard to see, but not forever is the idea. Jesus, our brother, was 100% sure that everything would one day be revealed. Justice would come. Things would be set right. He trusted and he knew that the kingdom which began so weakly, seemingly, and insignificantly, seemingly, would ultimately become huge. And I think meaning everybody does it now. Everybody lives that way now. Everybody lives with grace and generosity and forgiveness and love. Almost to the point, now I'm total speculative theology here, but it's almost like we live that way more and more until the generation of the world, everybody living is in that sense, and there becomes nothing left to forgive because there's no more harm to each other. And none of it was the work of human beings that got there. It was all the work of the Spirit, but it was just totally different than all the ways we thought it would happen. Okay, I'm back out of speculation. I'm just wondering how it all goes down. But the idea, notice how that buried and hidden, it starts small, it gets big. The day when all human beings come and see God's kingdom for what it is, and they happily say, yes, I'm so in. We finally have learned, you know, that day is coming. Every knee shall bow. That's a promise from Jesus. All he needs is time. <laughs> and time is all he has for an infinite and eternal God. Yeah? He's got tons of time. So I think we're supposed to take a deep breath. He is bringing it to total perfection. Total goodness. It, it will come. As the great prophet Ezekiel spoke about, you know, he will wipe away every tear in this kingdom. Uh, Oz, Ozzy Osbourne talked about that too. No more tears. <laughs> Sorry. But the, I just, yeah, it's amazing. So here we are. The last two weeks we've listened to Jesus' parables. In them, he opens us up to this profoundly mysterious, very weird, but somehow still compelling vision of the kingdom of God. This kingdom has come, but society is not uprooted. And this is the mystery of the kingdom. We trust that this love of Jesus actually does heal evil. And that this love is how he patiently, slowly, but very powerfully moves toward that final and full clarity of his real kingdom. Don't ever stop craving it. But don't become impatient. Because the moment of impatience for it is the moment where we're more interested in our own vision than his. And when we can be interested in his, then we know exactly what to do with our neighbor. We don't just tolerate them, but we do, but not just tolerate. And we're not just patient, though we are very patient. 
not just tolerating, not just being patient, may we actually forgive the sins of those who sin against us and who sin against others, just as God forgives us and others. Forgiveness. Never putting people below us, never treating with contempt. Seeing that way as more precious than whatever we achieve by doing the opposite. You see? Seeing that way is more powerful, even if everything in the world says it's too small. It doesn't matter. Instead, my friends, instead of the ways of the world, may we love one another as we love the Lord our God with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our minds, with all our houses and cars and cash and coffee and beer and time and attention with every single thing that we possibly have, <laughs> may we love one another and love the Lord our God in this way, loving our neighbors as we love and care for our own self. May we love our neighbors mutually, all of them, without preference, with a generosity and a patience that is so much, it's so profoundly big that it starts looking foolish, according to a sense that is more common. Living this way with our families, friends, co-workers, neighbors, teammates, as though they, like you and me, whomever they are, are true miracles of God. All of us in the process of being healed by a very loving God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>